But I ended the sermon last week saying, for how awesome and important the resurrection is, there's a lesson that Luke wanted to get across. Luke wants us to see in the end of his, his book, at the, after the, the resurrection, how clueless the disciples were. And something that's interesting, I want you to um, just, just think about this, look, look at this. One of the ways that biblical authors show how important um, something is, especially in historical narrative when they're telling a story, when they, when they want to point out how important a story is, a lot of the times the way they do this is by just giving a, a lot of time talking about it. They spend a lot of uh, um, time just talking about the story, giving it a bunch of details. Look at this. Look at what Luke does. He spends more time in the passage that we're going to be going over today, the, the road to Emmaus, verses 13. This, this passage goes from 13 all the way to verse 35. That's 22 verses. It's a big chunk of scripture right there. He gives more time on this than actually the resurrection account itself, which is verses 1 through 12, 12 verses. And I want to be clear, I'm not saying that this passage is more important than the resurrection. Um, it's obvious the other Gospels don't even talk about the road to Emmaus. It's just Luke that talks about it. Um, but they spend a lot of time on the resurrection. I just want you to see that this is an important text this morning, and, and it's important to Luke. There is something that Luke is trying to get across to us, right, to the reader in his Gospel. It follows an important theme that I pointed out last week in chapter 24. There's, there's three passages, verses 4 through 10, Verses is 13 through 35, and verses um, 36 through, through 53. All three of these passages follow a similar pattern. Bewilderment by the disciples, confusion, bewilderment. Rebuke by Jesus or an angel. Instruction through Scripture. And then finally, an excitement to go witness, to go tell about what has happened. And so that's going to be our outline this morning. Bewilderment, rebuke instruction, and then excitement to witness. So let's start with uh, bewilderment, right? Look at verse 13. We'll jump right in the passage. This very day, or that very day, this is Resurrection Sunday, just it's the same day that Jesus was ri- uh, raised from the dead. Verse 13, it says, That very day, two of them were going to a village um, named Emmaus, about seven miles uh, from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. Okay, again, Resurrection Sunday, meaning Friday, just a few days before, Jesus was, was killed. He was murdered. And, and we talked about some of the supernatural events that happened on that day. Three, three hours of darkness in the land. An earthquake that was, was, was big enough to split rocks, it said. The curtain was split into two, and opening the Holy of Holies for everyone to see. And of course, Jesus dies, and Friday evening, we, we talked about Jesus' body was buried. Saturday, everyone rested, and now it's Sunday. And we learn from verses 22 through 24 in this passage that these two disciples knew the tomb was empty. They knew the body was gone. And look at verse 14 again. It says this, And they were talking with each other about these things that had happened. Verse 15, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. There's something interesting that it honestly is a mystery. We don't really understand why, but, but this happens a lot with Jesus' resurrection body. 
John 20, 14, you don't have to turn there, you can just listen to this, uh, maybe make note about this passage, but it says this in, in John 20, verse 14. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. She, she was looking right at Jesus, didn't know it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And then this is what, what she thought, supposing him to be the gardener. And she had no idea it was Jesus and looking straight at him. John 21, 4 says this, just, a day, or just as day was breaking, Jesus stood at the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And look at verse 36 in, in, in this, in this uh, uh, chapter, Luke 24, verse 36. As they were talking about these sayings, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. For some reasons, the disciples didn't immediately recognize Jesus in his resurrected body, in his physical resurrected body. But in this case, these two disciples, God hid Jesus' identity. Look at verse 16. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. The bird in Greek is... uh, which means to hold back, to restrain, or to prevent, to prevent, right? It's a it's an, uh, passive imperative, meaning uh, their eyes were being, continuously being prevented from recognizing Jesus. In other words, God was actively not letting these disciples recognize Jesus, which, of course, leads to a very interesting and, and important question. Why? Why would, would Jesus hide his identity from these two disciples as they're walking to Emmaus? These two disciples, and I want you to, to realize this, these two disciples who loved Jesus, it's obvious in this passage, who were tired, probably didn't sleep the last two nights, I'm assuming. They were tired, depressed, confused, disillusioned, lost. Like all Jesus had to do was show himself and all that would be gone. But he doesn't. Instead, he hides his identity from them. Why? It's an interesting question, right? Look at verse 15 again. While they're talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are, you are holding with each other uh, as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Just kind of Luke is showing you that these disciples really love Jesus, and this is this Messiah, this person they were following, this person they loved, they just saw get crucified. Their hearts were broken. Then one of them, named uh, Calepius, uh, answered him Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that had happened there in these days? Right? This, this disciple's shocked. How do you not know what we're talking about? Everyone knew. I mean, this was witness. I mean, Jesus' whole life was witnessed by thousands. Right? The miracles he did were not done in a corner somewhere and only a few witnessed. I mean, they were from, in front of thousands. That's why it's so, such good evidence that, that Christ did these things because there were so many followers that actually followed him. People witnessed what Jesus did in his life. But not just his life, his death alone 
right? I mean, the darkness, we talked about that, the earthquake, the tearing of the curtain. I mean, these guys are thinking, how do you not know what we're talking about? Verse 19, and he being Jesus, of course, and he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and, and words before um, God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. What's verse 20 sound like? And let me just read it again. Does, does this sound familiar? How the chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. Sounds like what Jesus said, right? Predicting this would happen. I mean, it's almost word for word what Jesus said would happen. Luke's making a point here. These disciples should have known. It's a common theme through these next three passages, last week, this week, and next week. These disciples should have known that Jesus would die and on the third day be raised. But they didn't. And verse 21 tells us why. Look, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. Last week, we talked about this a lot, that these disciples had these preconceived ideas of who the Messiah would be, these, these, these expectations that, that came from their upbringing, traditions. They, they, there's this desire and hope that Jesus would be this warrior Messiah that would, would overthrow the Romans, not get killed by the Romans, redeemed Israel, in their minds meant establishing an earthly kingdom all this preconceived ideas and expectations clouded their ability to understand Jesus' plain teaching, plain words, telling them what would happen. So look at verse 21 again. But, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these sayings have happened. And moreover, some women um, of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when uh, they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he is, was alive, that he was alive. I mean, that's more than enough to believe, right? You would think, well, this is exactly what Jesus said would happen. Of course he's alive. But look at verse 24. I think this is key to this whole entire passage. Some of those who are with us, it's talking about the other disciples. Some of those who are with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. But him they did not see. If you know English well, that's an awkward sentence, right? Him they did not see. Him they did not see. It actually sounds like, reminds me of Yoda from Star Wars, right? I was going to try to do the voice, but there's no way. Him they did not see. The direct object should be after the verb. They did not see him. You don't put the direct object before the verb in English because word order is extremely important in English. That's how we know what the, the direct object is and, and, and the... Um, and the subject of the sentence is, the subject comes before the verb, the direct object after the verb. To put the direct object before the verb, it sounds weird. Him, they did not see. In Greek, that's not the case. You can put words anywhere. 
because it, it, the direct object and subject are, are told by the endings, how the, the word ends. But this is even out of normal order for Greek, and, and it's that way on purpose. It highlights one word, him. Him they did not see. Here's the point. The disciples refused to believe till they saw him. Till they had a personally experienced Jesus themselves. In other words, this might be slight, but I think it's important. They would be the judge if Jesus was truly raised from the dead. Even though Jesus' words said it would happen. On the third day, I will be raised from the dead. Even though the Old Testament predicted his death and resurrection, him they did not see. Look at verse 24 again. Some of those who were with us, the disciples, again, some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. Therefore, they did not believe. It was clear that they were making their own personal experience more authoritative than the word of God itself. So this leads to a rebuke, and that's our second point this morning, a rebuke. Verse 25, and he, again, this is Jesus, and he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. You should have believed without seeing Jesus, without seeing the empty tomb, without a personal experience, purely because the word of God said it would happen. Oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. This is Jesus' rebuke. He's saying something like this. God's word should be more authoritative than your own personal experience. Then even your own sight. Listen, as Christians, it's why we believe in the virgin birth. Right? It's why we believe in the virgin birth. It's not because we've ever seen one or experienced one. It's simply because the Word said it happened. It's why we believe in the Trinity. Even though rationally we can't get our minds wrapped around the Trinity, we believe it because that's what the Word says. It's why I personally believe in a seven-day creation. Even though the majority of science in the secular world say there's no way, no way younger seven-day creation. Don't get me wrong, I believe there's evidence out there, but it's not because of the evidence that makes me believe or disbelieve. It's just simply because God's word says seven days. Here's the point. Scripture should be the judge of our personal experience, not the other way around. Listen, this is very important for us in our culture and our church to hear this morning. Actually, when we started, Luke, I was looking forward to this passage. I was hoping, I told Brent, I want to preach on this passage when we get here. Um, and it's because, of, because it, it speaks to our culture, and it goes against the grain of our culture. Listen, our culture elevates personal experience over everything. Our culture sees personal experience as more authoritative than God's word, for sure. But it also sees personal experience more authoritative than reason. Even empirical observation, even our five senses. 
Listen, to really understand this, we need to understand a little bit of the history of how we got here as a culture. And so, just real quickly, when we left the Middle Ages, and I'm talking about Western civilization, when we left the Middle Ages, modern philosophers came in, and they were pursuing objective knowledge and truth outside of the Word. And most of them had a, had a value of God's word, and you read a lot of the modern philosophers, they'd speak highly of God's words. But it wasn't as authoritative to them as reason and empirical observation, their five senses. They thought truth was out there somewhere, and they were going to find it. They believed truth was objective and out there, outside of man, and they were looking for it. And they thought that there was two means that would get them to that, and that's rationalism and, like I said, empiricism. Right? Without getting too technical, if you go through the history of philosophy, we see that both those things failed as foundations to ultimate truth, objective truth. Neither of them were ultimate enough to explain the reality that we live in. Rationalism and empiricism, empirical observation, are five senses. Rationalism and empiricism were, were insufficient to answer our deepest questions. They're, they're insufficient to establish objective truth, which led philosophers to a postmodern philosophy. We've got to understand this. Postmodern philosophy argues that there is no foundation to objective truth. And therefore, all truth is subjective to the individual. In simplistic terms, it's just this. All truth is purely based off of personal experience and personal belief. Truth is relative to the individuals. There's a difference between modern philosophers and postmodern philosophers. Modern philosophers thought truth was out there somewhere, and they were pursuing it. They were looking for it. It was outside of us, and it was more authoritative than us. It was objectively true for everyone. When that failed, they just gave up, and postmodern, came, postmodern philosophy came in and said, truth is inside the individual. It's not objective. It's subjective to the individual. It's inside each one of us, and it's, it's different for each one of us. It's relative. Listen, this philosophy was adopted by our culture, our, our country, Western civilization, and it's destroying it. It's absolutely destroying our culture. I say this in all grace. It's why men can say they're women. It's why men can say they're women. Again, and before I even get into this, we need to show grace to the homosexual community. We need to love on them. We need to speak truth. But we better be loving to them. It's why men can say they're women, even though rational evidence says otherwise, even though empirical five senses, empirical observation says otherwise. All they have to say is, inside I feel like I'm a woman. Inside I believe. I'm going to have a personal experience that proves I'm a woman. Listen, it's why we're killing millions of babies in the womb. Again, Grace, if you've had an abortion and you're here this morning, there is grace. God will forgive you. But it's why our culture is killing millions of babies in the womb. When, when rational evidence tells us that, that that's a baby, when, when empirical observation, and you know, we have ultrasounds, we can see, says otherwise. 
And everything points to that fetus is a human baby. All you have to say is, I don't believe it. It's my personal truth. Postmodern philosophy elevates personal belief and experience over objective truth. Defines our, our Western culture, our Western civilization, and it's destroying it. It's destroying it. You can't build a, a culture off of subjective truth. It doesn't work. But I want to say this, and this is why I get into philosophy and culture. It's not that I don't care about those things. Those things are important. That's why I bring it up. But this philosophy is crippling the church. We have adopted it into our church. Not our church per se, but the church at large in America, in Western civilization, where doctrines are are more based off personal experience and opinion than biblical truth. And as a pastor, I come across this all the time. People come and talk, and, and I know like the culture has, has influenced all of us so much, more than we even realize. And people will come and talk, and want to talk about doctrine, or church policy, or what should we do, or theology. And they start the conversation off like this. From my personal experience, I believe. I, I partly want to say, I don't care what you believe. <laughs> I mean, I do, because I care about the person, don't get me wrong. I want to know what God thinks. From my experience, I believe, or they'll say something like this, I feel like God is telling us. I feel like Scripture teaches. Or either it does or it doesn't. Right? At HOS, I I have taught uh, an apologetic class. And one of the things I make them do, actually there's two major essays, but one of them is on the Trinity. An essay on the Trinity. And I, I tell them right off the bat, you'll get an F. If I see one of three phrases, automatic F, if I see one of three phrases, I believe, I feel, I think. You know how hard it is for them not to use one of those three phrases? I mean, they struggle. Listen, for my generation, and I believe the generation above me too, and everyone below me, for my generation, it is hard not to use those phrases. Because of postmodern philosophy has been ingrained into our thinking. Listen, that's, this is including our conservative students from our conservative school in our conservative town. That's how, that's how much this has influenced us. Listen, for my generation, it seems arrogant to say anything is objectively true. It seems arrogant to say anything is objectively true. To say this is true seems arrogant. Even in the church. Even if God has clearly said it's true in his word. It seems arrogant to say, Scripture says, instead of saying, I feel like Scripture says. It seems arrogant to say, God says. I mean, no one ever says, thus says the Lord. (laughs) Could you imagine? Because in our postmodern culture has, has influenced our thinking and it's influenced the church, which has elevated, it's elevated subjective personal experience as the foundation to truth. I, and I encourage you to check yourself on this. Right? It's, it's part of the challenge I gave last week. Listen, 
Experience is good. Experience is good. That's not what I'm saying. I'm a Christian because I want to experience joy. I say that unabashedly. I want joy. And I'm pursuing it with everything I have. And I know it's only found in a relationship with the Lord. Experience is good. It's important. It's essential to Christianity. But experience can be very dangerous. Because I have four, four reasons. There's more than four. But four reasons why a personal experience can be dangerous. First reason is this. Personal experience is often misleading. Personal experience is often misleading. I was thinking about this um, for my birthday a few years ago. We went up to Tahoe and we went to an illusionist show. Right? And the, the guy called me up on stage, and I was on stage for a long time. I don't know why. I don't know if he knew it was my birthday or what it was. But I was up there on stage for a long time, and, and one of the things they did is they put an empty box with glass around it, and he had me look everywhere, underneath, around, inside, everywhere. And I was like, you're not fooling me. I'm examining this box. Put a sheet over it, pulled it off. There's a girl in the box. No idea how he did it. My experience fooled me there, right? But listen, this is true for deeper truths than an illusionist show. Have you ever asked a Mormon how they know they're right? And they say something like this. I've had a burning in my bosom. You know what that is? I looked this up on online. It's not authoritative, I'm assuming, but Mormon Wiki, which is like Wikipedia for Mormons, which I didn't know exist. <laughs> burning in my bosom. It's one of the foundations of Mormonism, or one of the foundations for Mormonism is the um, its uh, insistence that a person seek the truth by praying for a private, special revelation from the Holy Spirit. You hear that? A private, special revelation that the Holy Spirit would talk to me privately from the Holy Spirit. You know how many Christians say that happens all the time and lead them all all different directions? Right? This is a Mormon Mormons encouraging people to pray privately that the Holy Spirit will reveal if Mormonism is true. And what happens? They receive something that's called a burning in the bosom, which is a confirmation to the truth for them. Mormonism is a false religion. It's not true. It's a lie. And Mormons are using an experience to lead millions astray. Look, experience is often misleading. Second reason why experiences can be dangerous is experience is subjective, not objective. Experience is subjective, not objective. As a pastor, you kind of get behind-the-scenes look of things. Most people that come visit our church, I would say, think that we're very welcoming and loving. I mean, we can work on that. We can be more loving and, and, and welcome visitors. And, but most people say that. Every now and then I get a person that will come in and say that we're not. They said that they just didn't feel welcome when they came here. There was one time I got two connection cards. I'm looking at these and just kind of thought, thought it was funny almost. One saying, one of the most loving churches I've ever been to. Another one saying, we're not a very friendly church. And I'm looking at these the same day. They came on the same Sunday. It wasn't like we had a bad Sunday. Experiences are subjective. 
They can be different. And here's what's dangerous about that. There's no room for accountability. There's no room for accountability. This is the third reason why, why um, experiences are dangerous. It's hard to challenge a person's personal experience. How do you challenge a person's personal experience? That's why a lot of people, I believe, base their, their beliefs off experience because you can't challenge them. They say, well, that's just what I believe. That's what I've experienced. That's what I feel. How do you challenge that? But it leaves no room for accountability. I've talked to a person that felt like our church was unwelcome. And I asked them, I'm like, well, what made you feel unwelcome? And I was legitimately wanted to know so we could work on it. I said, I can't, can't give you a reason. I just felt unwelcome. How do you argue with that? Or how do you talk with a person when they say something like that? If, you're, if, you're, if you base your beliefs off personal experience, there is no room for that belief to be challenged. We need to challenge our beliefs. There's no room for accountability. There's no room to say, hey, I don't know if that's true. Well, it's true for me. If someone, as soon as someone comes up to me and says, I believe blank, and fill in the blank, I believe in this doctrine or whatever it is, because I had this personal experience, there's no arguing with that person. There's, there's no challenging or talking. You just listen because there's nothing else you can say. It's subjectively true for them. And there's no accountability. But here's the amazing thing about Scripture. Right? It's different. It's objective. It's outside of me. It's not inside me. And it's partly inside of me. But don't get me wrong. It's outside of me. Even as a pastor, as I'm preaching, if I say something unbiblical, it's your responsibility to come tell me and point it out in Scripture and show me. There's accountability there. It's one of the reasons I study so hard, just so you know, and this is not one of the sanctified reasons I study so hard. I, 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 honestly, I hope it's because I know God is watching me, but I also know that COBC knows their scripture well. Now, I get up here and say something that's not scriptural. I know five of you are going to come up to me right away and say, hey, I don't know about this. Hopefully gently and lovingly. and You keep me accountable. Scripture is objective. We both can look at it and reason together. This leads me to my last reason why experience can be so dangerous. This fourth. If you are basing a belief off an experience instead of God's word, you're making yourself the authority and not God. You're making yourself the authority and not God. If you say, I believe this, because I had this experience, you're the judge. Now, don't get me wrong. Experiences can confirm what we know in God's word. And I'm not, we'll come back. If you're getting mad at me right now because you had an experience that you treasure, stay to the end of the sermon. But if you say, I believe this because I had this experience, you're judging it because of your experience. But if you say, I believe this because God has told me this is true, God is the judge, and you're submitting to him. This is especially true with things that go against our experience, like the virgin birth, the Red Sea parting, Jesus walking on water, the Trinity. But this is especially, especially, especially true when it goes against some of our deepest strongholds and convictions. For example, when God says, you are a rebellious sinner, 
You know, if you ask most non-believers if they're going to heaven, what do they say? Yeah, I, I think I'm a pretty good person. I'm not that bad. Scripture says otherwise. Psalms 14.3, it says, They have all turned astray. Together they have all become corrupt. There is not, none who does good, not even one. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Listen, the first step to salvation is abandoning your personal beliefs and convictions in your experience. It's abandoning them and, and submitting and, and trusting in the Lord. And you know what? That only happens supernaturally. That only happens supernaturally. That's how hard it is to abandon your personal beliefs and convictions. It only happens supernaturally through the rebirth, the circumcision of the heart, the Bible says. Taking a heart of stone that thinks, hey, I'm a pretty good person, and making it soft, making it flesh, going, you know what? I'm not. I need Christ. That's how hard that is. Listen, Scripture needs to judge our experiences, not the other way around. Scripture needs to judge our experiences, not the other reason. It's so important. Listen, salvation depends on it. One theologian said this, It is crucial for us to let Scripture shape our experiences rather than allow our experiences to shape our understanding of Scripture. The Bible is God's word to us. And we need to hear what God has to say about our lives, not the other way around. And the majority of the church is doing it the other way around. This brings me back to the challenge I gave last week. When you think through some of the more controversial topics of Scripture, baptism, predestination, election, God's wrath, hell, demons, church government, end times, spiritual gifts, speaking in tongues, healing, prophecy, trinity, justification by faith, and so on, do you have a strong conviction on these topics because first, right, do you have a strong conviction because you have built it off a deep study and understanding of Scripture? Or is it more a conviction of upbringing, tradition, or personal experience? The second challenge I gave last week, because listen, I get it. We're not going to... All of, we're not going to be able to study all that right now. That's going to take a lifetime to study all those subjects. So that first one, listen, all I'm saying is, do you hold on to that strongly because of an experience or because of a deep study of Scripture? It's the second challenge I really want to point out, and it's this. Would you be willing to change your conviction if Scripture proved your conviction wrong? That's the main challenge. Which leads to the third point of the sermon, Instruction. These two disciples said in verse 24, but him they did not see. We have not seen him, therefore we do not believe. And Jesus rebukes them in verse 25. He says, and, and he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. You should have believed scripture, in other words. Scripture should have been more authoritative than your personal experience. Look at verse 26. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his, his glory? And beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Why don't you think about that for a second? And you picture this. Jesus walking with these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. How long this would have taken 
I mean, when it says Moses and all the prophets, it's most likely just a way of saying the whole Old Testament. Jesus went through the whole Old Testament and showed how it pointed to him, his life, his death, and resurrection. Why would Jesus take so much time digging into deep theology? And I'll tell you, you want to go look for Jesus' life, resurrection, and death in the Old Testament, you're going to be digging into some very deep theology. Why would he spend so much time in deep theology using the Old Testament to prove his death and resurrection when he could have just said, hey, it's me. Look, guys, take the blinders off. I'm right here. Because it was important to Jesus that their foundation was in Scripture, not personal experience. That the foundation to their faith and belief was in Scripture, not an experience. Even a true good experience, like Jesus being alive in front of them, that's a good thing. That's a correct experience. He wanted them to build their faith on Scripture. And so he spends the time to go through the whole Old Testament explaining how it points to them. Look at verse 29 or 28. So they drew near to the, the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, um, for it is toward evening, and the day is and now far spent. In other words, it's getting dark, and they invited him in. Verse 29, to their house for dinner and to, to spend the night. Verse 29, second part says this. So, so he went in to stay with them. Verse 30, when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed, blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Now, this is a little unusual for us, maybe not, but in this culture, uh, the blessing and breaking of bread was the job for the head of the household, not a guest. So for Jesus to take the bread and do that would have been unusual, but he did something in that moment that took the spiritual blinders off. And look at verse 31. And their eyes were open, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sights. I love this story. It's so weird, right? And I'm weird in a good way, not a bad way. I mean, it's just so different than how we would have written it as humans. Look at the disciples' response, verse 32. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Isn't that beautiful? This passage ends with an experience. Did not our hearts burn within us? Listen, experiences are important. Christianity without experience is lifeless. It's lifeless. It's important that you experience God. It's important that you experience his love, his joy, his grace, his discipline. It's important that you experience the freedom that Christianity brings It's important that you experience the the trials and challenges of life. It's important that you experience corporate worship. That's why we're here this morning. Listen, I love that we have Facebook Live now. Um, And for those that are listening right now, if you are homesick or you're traveling, you you can watch the sermon. But it can't replace the experience of corporate worship. It's why Hebrews 10.25 says, Do not neglect to meet together as in the habits of some. Our Christian experiences are important, just not foundational. 
experiences are not authoritative. Scripture is. I was thinking about this and trying to figure out because this is a deep kind of abstract concept. It's like a coloring book, which is not deep. It's childish, right? But it's like a coloring book. Just follow along with me. The lines of the coloring book are like Scripture. The lines define what the picture is. You can look at a coloring book, open it up, and know exactly what the picture is before anyone's colored it. It defines truth and reality. But experience is like filling in those lines with color. It brings life to the picture. I believe there's many people that know a lot about Scripture, but never live it out. In other words, they have a colorless Christianity. And honestly, they're probably not saved. On the other hand, right, there are many people that that have all types of spiritual experiences. But those experiences aren't grounded in Scripture. They believe in unbiblical doctrine. It's like taking a crayon and just scribbling on a pink page. They're making things up as they go. And honestly, many of these people probably aren't saved either. It's only when you let Scripture define reality, define truth, and you live it out, you live within those lines, that you experience life to the fullest, a life full of color. I can tell you, I've had a crazy experience once. In college, and it's probably important now that I'm preaching more up here that you know this, for you guys that don't know my testimony, I lived a pretty pagan life right after high school. Not submitting to God as my Lord. I wanted him as my Savior, but not Lord. I wanted to do my own thing. And I remember spending a weekend down in San Diego, and the whole weekend partying and doing things I shouldn't have been. And I remember on my way home from San Diego, I had this guilt. So I grew up in a solid church. I grew up here. I knew God's word. I knew the truth. And I had this guilt that was just burdening me. And I remember stopping at this gas station, and this gas station was, must have been a holiday. I don't remember. I just remember this gas station very vividly, and it was full of people. And as I walked into the gas station, as soon as I opened the door, across the whole entire gas station, there was this man that was staring at me as soon as I walked in the door. And it was awkward. And he didn't stop staring. You know how somebody's looking at you, you look at him, you both turn away, you know. He didn't do that. He just kept staring straight at me. And it was almost as the whole scene was just quiet. All the stuff that was going on around me. And this man started walking towards me, straight at me. And he came up to me, and all he said was, God loves you. And walked right past me and walked out the door. I've wondered who that guy was, right? Just a random person. Maybe not even a Christian. A Christian that was trying to witness, and and maybe he was like, all right, that guy right there, I'm going to say something. Part of me wonders if it was just an angel sent by God. Here's the point. You know how I know God loves me? Not from that experience. Because John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Because Romans 31 says, when, uh, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son but gave him, him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Or because of 1 John 4.10 which says, In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us 
and sent his son to be the appropriation for our sins. I know God loves me because scripture tells me that God loves me. Not because of some experience, but you know what else? I've never forgot that experience. And I treasure that moment for whatever it means. I honestly can't wait to go to heaven and just ask God and be like, okay, what was that? It's only when you let Scripture define reality and how you should live and you do it that you will experience a life to the fullest and a life full of color. Verse 32 says, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the Scripture? This leads us to our last point, call to witness. We're going to cover this point next week in the next sermon. Let's pray and we'll be dismissed today. Dear Holy Father God, I thank you, Lord, for the experiences that we have as Christians, Lord. That you, if we live out the scriptures, if we do what you have called us to do, Lord, that is a very adventurous interesting life. And I thank you for that. I I don't want to waste my life, Lord, on meaningless things. I want to pursue you with all of it, Lord. And I know that I still have the flesh and I'm still a sinner, Lord. But I am thankful for your grace, Lord. God, I pray, Lord, even with all of that, the the experiences that we seek, Lord, and, and, and that they're good, Lord, that we define all of that. We, we define it with Scripture, God. We don't let our experiences, Lord, define Scripture, but we, we let Scripture define our experiences, Lord. And that's hard for our postmodern culture, for those in the church that have been influenced by postmodernism, Lord, to do. But God, that's what you've called us to be, a people that trust you over even their own personal experiences even over their own sight, like the two men walking to Emmaus, Lord. They should have known. They should have known purely because you told them it would happen. God, help us to have that faith, Lord. Help us to trust you, Lord, when when everything in us cries out that maybe we we shouldn't, maybe we can't trust God, Lord. Help us to to ground our knowledge and and thoughts in your word and say, no, he is a loving God. If this is what he wants us to do, we need to do it. Help us to trust you and not our own self, Lord. In your son's name, amen.